Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So, good evening and welcome again to the Shear on Rashi. We are on Perak Lamad Bet of Rishit and we're up to Pasuk Tet Vav, which describes um, in detail, numerical detail, the nature of the Mincha the present that Yaakov sent to Esau. So we know that Yaakov is nervous about meeting Esau, he's governed, and now he is sending him a present. And there's uh, a lot to say, or well, Russia's got a lot to say, and we've got a lot to say. The Pasuk says, Izim Matayim, 200 goats, Utayashim Esrim, and 20 he goats. So the first goats are female, and the second goats, the 20 are male. Rachelim Matayim, 200 sheep, the Elim Esrim and two hundred and twenty rams. So in each case, he gives the female and he gives the male and he gives the numbers of each. Now I want to go on to Pasuk Tet Zion, which sort of concludes the list. And I actually want to see Rashi on Tet Zion before we go back to Rashi on Tet Vav, because we really need to do it in that order. Tet Zion says Gamalim Menikot, nursing camels Uvenehem and their children Shiloshim thirty, Parot Arbeim. Uh, 40 uh, female cows, uparim asara, and 10 bulls, atonot esrim, 20 donkeys, asara, and 10 male donkeys. Uh, Rashi has a, a, just one word on, the, on, on Ya'arim to say they are chamorim tzacharim, in case you didn't know, they are male donkeys, so atonot are female donkeys. So we have with each of the species, goats and sheep and camels and cows and donkeys, the number of males and the number of females, except we don't with the camels. The camels at the beginning of Tet Zion, we just said Gamalim Shloshim. 30 nursing camels, which found, sounds feminine, and their children. No mention of the male camels. So let's go straight into Rashi there. Rashi says in Tet Zion, Gamalim Menikot Shloshim Ubenehem. What's he done? Now, this is something that Rashi does from time to time, and you have to be alert to spot it. He's repeated the Pasuk, but he's made a little change. In the Pasuk, the word Shloshim came after Gamalim Menikot Ubenehem. Rashi put the word Shloshim one word earlier. So we have Gamalim Menikot. So now we know how many are the adult female camels and how many, well, we don't know how many are the children. And the Qur'ariya explains that Rashi feels the need to do this because apparently baby animals are not much of a present. I, I don't know enough about animal husbandry to know that why. But the important thing is to say how many adult animals that he's sending. So in the way, the, the original version, you don't know what the 30 refers to. Does it mean 30 nursing camels and 30 children? Does it mean a total of 30 between the nursing camels and the offspring? It's not clear. So Rashi clears it up. He says that Shaloshim will be telling you the important information, namely how many adult camels there are. Uh, he has the word imahem. Um, the benehem, imahem, the children are with them. But again, I think the imahem also emphasizes that the gamalim manikot are the 
Choshev, the significant part of the Milchah of the present, and the Benehem are like alongside. And then Rashi says, Umidrash Agada, there is a Midrash that says, Uvenehem really should be read as Banaehem with an Aleph. So instead of Uvenehem, it means Banaehem, which is a sort of archaic way of writing their builders, Aleph instead of Hey. So Banaehem means their builders. How, how does a camel, a female camel, have a builder? It means the males. Zahar Keneget Mekeva. Male corresponding to female. So the, now we read Gamalim Menikot Uvenehem means female nursing camels and male camels. Shloshim. Now, by the way, it's not quite clear um, if that means 30 of each, according to this second interpretation, or 15 of each. Doesn't really matter for our purposes because it is Zacha Keneget Mekeva, one male corresponding to one female. And then Rashi says, because camels are private in their uh, relations, in their, in their mating, the Pasuk didn't publicize it. So the second explanation gives us a bit more understanding and, and, and more to the point, um, put, makes the camels match the other four species. Going to the second explanation, now we have the number of females and the number of males. Now, I'm sorry, we don't quite have that number because I said you can read it as 15 of each or 30 of each. But we also have, crucially, and this is what's going to set us up for the Rashi on Tet Vav, the ratio of male to females. Now, a few other things to say. Why does Rashi bring two explanations? So the first explanation, uh, that the Shloshim goes with the Gamalim Menikot, doesn't explain why the Benehem, the children, are mentioned at all. Doesn't explain that. So maybe that's a reason why we need the second explanation that says it's not children, it's male camels. The second explanation, the problem actually is obvious. So how can you just change the spelling of a word? How can you say, well, it says Benehem, it means Benehem with an Aleph. So that perhaps is the weakness of the second explanation. By the way, Rashi elsewhere says Alephs are occasionally missed out. In Shemot Yud Kaf Aleph, in the plague of Choshech, he says, Vayamesh HaChoshech. And he gives two explanations of what Vayamesh means, one of which it's like the darkness of the night before. And Vayamesh is short for Yamesh, Aleph Mem Shin being the root, but the Aleph isn't there. So there is a support for the idea that Alephs occasionally drop out. And that would be the same case here. But nevertheless, that's a weakness of the second interpretation that we have to say there's an Aleph that's dropped out. Um, by the way, I'm not sure about the uh, biological details for camels are more, more private when it comes to their mating. Um, the Gemara in Bacharus, Chet Omad Aleph, says, Gamal achor keneged achor. Camels have a back-to-back um, -back mating. I'm not quite sure of the biology of that either. And maybe that's what Rashi is alluding to. Or maybe he has another source for saying the camels are more tznu'ah, which would explain the second explanation that why it's referring to males and females, but says it in a slightly more hidden way. Now, given what we've now seen Rashi on Tet Zion, based at least on Rashi's second explanation about the camels, we now have every species listed with their males and females. And the numbers, or more precisely, the ratios are different. In the case of goats, 200 female goats for 20 male goats. That's a one to 10 ratio. In the case of the uh, sheep, it's the same ratio. 200 female sheep for 20 male sheep. 
teeth. That's one to ten. In the case of the camels, as we've just said, it's one to one. And in the case of the cows and the bulls, it's one to four. Ten cows for 40, ten bulls for 40 cows. Now, Rashi is going to comment on these numbers, and Rashi is going to do something else um, uh, in terms of his relationship to the Midrash, which we need to talk about in his comment on Tetvav. So let's go. Tetvav, Rashi says, Isim Atayim, Utayashim Esrim, 200 female goats and 20 male goats. Matayim Izim, Surichat Esrim Tayashim. 200 female goats need 20 male goats. So what she is saying is there's a significance in the numbers of females per males in each species. And there are differences between the species in terms of how many females are needed to match up with how many males. So he starts by saying, Izim, there's 200 to 20, Bechein Kulam. And it's the same with all of them. It's precisely the number of males that are needed for that number of females, or perhaps you can look at it the other way around. Hazacharim Kadei Sorech Hanakevot. It's the number of males which correspond to the number needed by the females. So, so far, Rashi has said that there are differences um, in the number of goats needed to service the female goats, the number of bulls needed for the female cows, etc. It's a different ratio. And then he says, In Bereshit Rabbah, it expounds based on this verse, the marital relationships which are said in the Torah. This is a little bit uh, difficult to explain in a family-friendly way. Um, I, I, one can't, in fact. Um, but we know that ona, which literally means uh, a time period, um, which is a euphemism for the time, the, the uh, obligations of a man to have relations with his wife, um, is said in the Torah, actually learned from Lavan, from whom we learn a lot of uh, women's rights. Um, uh, and it's, it's a din in the Torah, but we don't know the details of it. We don't know how often is this obligation of honor. The Gemara, the Midrash says, and the Midrash based on this pastor says, Hatayalim b'cholyom. So Tayalim are people who walk around, who don't have much to do. They're in town and they're not um, very tired. So b'cholyom, their obligation to satisfy their wives is once a day. Hapoelim, people who don't necessarily travel, but nevertheless work hard and have less koach, less strength, shtayim b'shabbat, twice a week. Hachamarim, donkey drivers, who go out of town and come back, achad b'shabbat, once a week. Hagamalim, camel drivers, who go out further and take longer before they come back, echad b'shloshim yom, once every 30 days. Hasapanim, sailors, who travel long distances and then return, once every six months. That's what the Midrash says. And Rashi has already said that this Midrash is based, is darshaning based on our puzzle. And then he says something which is hard to explain based on our understanding, our traditional understanding of what is Rashi's mission statement, if you like. And I'll come back to this point. He says that, Eino Yodea, I do not know how to literally to direct this Midrash in the right direction or to make it nachon, to make it correct. 
But it seems in my eyes, Shalamadnu Mikan, that we learn from this, from our pastor about the animals, Sha'ain Ha'ona Shaver Adam, that the obligation of Ona is not the same for all people or for all males. But rather, it depends on the labor which is put on different individuals. So the more labor, the less the obligation of Onah. Because, and now Rashi spells out what, what I've mentioned, but now Rashi spells it out. We see from here, we find here that for every male goat is literally handed over 10 female goats. And it's the same, one to ten, for the sheep and the rams. Because the work of goats and the work of sheep is not very hard. They're not, they're not actually very busy. They're basically free from work. And therefore, their nature is to mate a lot. And one male can impregnate ten females. And with an animal, once they have conceived, they don't receive a male thereafter while they're pregnant. It's different for humans. And therefore, now, what Rashi means by those words is the subject of much discussion. But I think the simple and the correct interpretation, which is found in the majority of commentaries that I saw, is that um, if it weren't for that fact, then it would still, you, you wouldn't need a different number of females for the males because all you need is one, one of each. And then if they mate what, regular, frequently, they mate frequently. If they don't mate frequently, they don't mate frequently. Because, but rather the point is that the male of the species needs to mate at a certain number of times. Um, once he has made a, a female pregnant, then that female is like out the picture. So from where is he going to find other females um, to satisfy his needs? And that is why you need a certain number of females per male um, because it's not just that he'll, have, he'll mate with each one, but rather once each one gets pregnant, they, they're, they're removed and he needs more based on his needs. It's interesting, and maybe this is one of the things that Rashi means when he says he can't quite fit the Midrash in, that in terms of the onah, when it comes to men and women, it's the obligation, uh, it's, it's the woman's needs, um, very progressive attitude to uh, sexuality, it's the woman's needs, and it's the man who can satisfy those needs depending on how uh, free he is from other um, activities which labor on him. It seems um, that when it comes to the animals, it's the male's need, and the females have to be enough females to satisfy the male's need. And in particular, that's why once the female becomes pregnant and she's out of the picture, there needs to be enough females to satisfy the male. Anyway, it carries on. Uparim. When it comes to cows, they work hard, they pull plows and things. The male only needs to serve four females. And I think, again, that's from the point of view of the male's needs. And therefore, one bull for four cows is the right number. And for donkeys, who go on long journeys, um, and I think either that means the male's away for a while or the male's working hard. One male mates with two females. And for camels, based on Rashi's second interpretation in Tet Zion, that the idea of Benahem is Benahem, their male builders, one to one. 
so back to Rashi on the Tetvav, for camels which go on even longer distances, it's one female for the males. Okay. This is a very strange Rashi. Uh, it's not just that the subject matter is a little bit difficult, but uh, I think we've managed to cover that. Um, what is Rashi's problem? And why does Rashi bring the Midrash? And why does Rashi bring a Midrash, which he says doesn't fit very well? So it, I think the answer to the first question, or I like, I like to propose an obvious answer, is why does the Pasuk go into such detail telling us exactly how many sheep and how many rams and how many goats and how many he goats, etc.? It didn't need to say that. It could have just said lots of animals. He sent lots of animals to uh, Aesop. It could have said, it could have just bundled the males and females together. He sent 220 goats. He sent 220 sheep. Why does it need to spell out the males and the females? Now, maybe that's a, a too pedestrian type of question, but I think it's a good question. Uh, and Rashi says the answer is um, to tell you, well, he doesn't, in the first part, before he brings the Midrash, he just spells out that you've got different ratios. Um, and then he says, yes, yeah, so the very first line of Rashi, he's just telling you that there's males, a certain number of males need a certain number of females. But then he brings the Midrash. And I would like to say the following. There is a famous debate about Rashi's relationships to Midrashim. Why does Rashi bring a Midrash? The Mizrahi, who is the foremost sort of classical commentator on Rashi, is of the view that Rashi brings a Midrash when it's, and my words, and perhaps I'm being unfair, when it's nice, when it's interesting. And sometimes he'll bring a Midrash which doesn't directly relate to Shaf the Pasuk, but it's nice for us to learn. Other commentators on Rashi take a different view. And in recent times, Nahum Leibovitz wrote a brilliant, I think treatise is the word, proving um, her view, contrary to that of the Mizrahi, that Rashi only brings Midrashim to explain Pshat. Uh, and she proved it by saying sometimes a Rashi will find a Midrash which is written on one Pasuk and he will bring it on a different Pasuk because that's where it's needed to explain Pshat. And perhaps a better uh, evidence is when Rashi will change a Midrash. He will misquote or rather quote, uh, change the words of a Midrash in order to fulfill its task of explaining Pshat when the original Midrash might've done something else. But I think you have to allow for a little bit more flexibility, perhaps a little bit more nuance when you come across a Rashi like this. Um, there's another one we met a while ago at the beginning of Ayetze, uh, where Rashi sort of critiques the Gemara's view about how um, Ha Hamaria moved to where Yaakov was. Um, and he, he says, this is what it says in the Gemara, and I'll tell you the problems I have with it. And there's a few other places where Rashi does that. Um, and here he seems to be saying, look, we need to explain why there are uh, all these numbers and why there is a difference in terms of the ratio between males and females for different animals. And then he says, Bereshit Rabba Dorshans works out from here about another matter, which would explain why we need the pastor. Because it's according to the, the Midrash, it's not just telling us what Yaakov did in terms of sending animals to Esau, but rather it's telling us the basic idea of Ona, which is a halacha, which is midoraita, and it's important for us to understand a little bit how Ona works. And the Midrash would be saying, I believe, that this is the purpose of the Pasuk. Now, of course, Midrash by definition is drash, but nevertheless, as we can see from Rashi all over the place, 
That, that drash, that midrash sometimes is necessary to explain Peshat. So I would suggest, um, and I haven't seen it spelt like this. In fact, very few people commented on this question, why Rashi brings a midrash in order to disagree with it. I would suggest that Rashi is saying, we need an answer. We need an answer for why these numbers and why these males and why these females are spelled out in such detail. And look, here's a midrash. And that's the best I can offer. But to be honest, it doesn't really do the job. So Rashi is bringing a midrash, but he says the midrash doesn't really fit. Which is a very strong statement. And, and it, what I'm trying to say is it begs the question, well, if it doesn't fit, why does Rashi bring it at all? And my answer is, because Rashi feels the need to find some explanation of the details of this pasuk, he offers you the midrash, but he resigns himself to saying the midrash doesn't really fit. But nevertheless, it's the best I can do. So I think when we come across a Rashi like this, which are rare, but they do exist, where Rashi brings a midrash and then critiques it, it's Rashi saying, I need to find some explanation. This is the best I can find, but I know it's not perfect. Now, why isn't it perfect? Um, so I already suggested that uh, it seems to me that the animals and the humans sort of go in the opposite direction. For the humans, it's how often the man is available to satisfy the woman. For the animals, it's how many women, are, how many females are needed for the desires, if you like, the mating habits of the male. It's also the case that in the Midrash, there are only four categories. In the uh, Pasuk, there are five. Uh, yes. Uh, it's also the case that the numbers don't quite match. Uh, well, they don't match at all because in the, um, in the case of the people, of the humans, it's a, a time regulation. It's how often. Is it once a day? Is it twice a week? Is it once a week? Is it once a month? Is it once every six months? In the case of the animals, it's how many females per male. So there's all sorts of ways in which these, the Midrash and the Pasuk don't quite match up. And maybe one or two more of those is what Rashi means when he says, Any any questions? So they wouldn't really seem to fit in with either, would you say, with the Mizrahi's understanding or the Havilah? No, it's somewhere point. in the middle. Yeah, That's yeah. what I'm suggesting. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and my dart is very Aeneas. Um, I think when you come across this, you have to have a little bit of a middle course. The Rashi's bringing a Midrash, but it doesn't quite fit. Any questions? Do you mind if I switch it? No, I don't mind if you switch it up. <laughs> Okay, after all that, we're ready to go on to Pasuk Zion. So I mentioned the last words of Rashi on Tet Zion, where he just explains what, what Ya'arim means. Uh, and again, um, <coughs> I can suggest that he's just telling you what the word means, because you might not be familiar with that word. And the air conditions on. Pasuk Zion. Vayetain biyad avadav. Ada Ada Levado, he put in the hands of his servants each flock alone. He said to his servants, Pass before me and put a space between each flock. So Rashi's got a few things to say. First of all, on the words Ada Ada Levado, Kolmin Vermin Laatzmo each species by themselves. So the species were mixed together, they were separate. Now that's learned from the word levado. I mean, he could have just said, Ada, Ada, 
right? Flock by flock. But he says, to say that the species are not mixed together. Then on the words, Ivru um, Lafanai, pass before me, Derech Yom or Pachot, a day's journey or less. I think that must mean a little bit less, because if it means anything less, then they're not telling us something at all. The Ani Avo and I will come after you. Um, why does he have to say Derech Yom or Pachot? So the problem is, the Pasuk says, Revach Tasimu Bein Eda Uvein Eda, put a space between each flock. And in the next comment of Rashi, he's going to explain why you put a space. But the, what the Pasuk hasn't done and doesn't do is define how much space is space. Revach um, Tasimu sounds like you actually have to actively make a gap, which means the second lot, well, we're going to see there's three lots. The second lot delay a certain gap after the first, and the third lot delay after the second. It's not just the first set out, and then as soon as the first have gone, the second set out. Revach tasimu means you have to actively create a space. So it's got to have a certain shi'or, it's got to have a certain amount. It's got to have a certain um, distance between them because you actually have to put that distance in. So the post doesn't tell us what the distance is. So Rashi presumably works out that it must be a distance that will achieve the effect that he's going to talk about in the next comment. So he works out that it's a day or less. I think that must mean a little bit less than a day. Um, and it's also the case that there must be a, a clear gap between one, two, and three. Otherwise, there's no point in having separate groups. If it's one, immediately followed by two, immediately followed by three, that's really one long group. If it's one with a gap, followed by two with a gap, followed by three, that makes it three separate groups, as we will see that in the next passage, Rashi said, uh, Yaakov says, there's three separate groups. Um, Rashi also said, in the words we've just said, I will come after you. Rashi adds that in, perhaps because in Pasuk Yutet, um, part of the message, which I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but in the next Pasuk, um, Yaakov tells the messengers what to say to Esau. And the last words that he tells them to say is, that's the end of Yutet. Behold, he is coming after us. So if they have a message to say he's coming after us, that really means there's four groups, if you like. Group one with some of the flocks, group two with some of the flocks, group three, and group four is one person, it's Yaakov. So Rashi says that's going to be part of the procession, which is being described by Rashi here as Ibrul Afanai, Derech Yom O Pachot, Va'ani Avo Acharehem. And I think Rashi also wants to say um, that you might think from Yudzayan, but there's no Yaakov, in which case you have a contradiction between Yudzayan and Yudtet. Yudzayan says you pass each of the flocks and that's it. Yudtet, suddenly there's Yaakov coming at the end. So I think in order to reconcile them, I mean, the first thing I said was you can say it's, it's, he's just describing the procession. But I also think that he needs to reconcile what apparent is the implication of Yudzayan, but there's no Yaakov. And the message of Yudtet, but Yaakov is there coming up, bringing up the rear. So Rashi puts out, Rashi explains here that in the fullest, uh, Rashi adds the details of what Yaakov is saying to the servants about what's going to happen. He says, I'm going to come after you. And once we have that in Rashi's comment on Yudtet, sorry, on, on Yudzayan, then Yudzayan matches Yudtet. Now, I keep promising, the Tasimu says Rashi, 
what does it mean? You should place, make a space between them. Eider lifnei chavero malo ayim. Each flock in front of its fellow, i.e. in front of the next flock, flock malo ayim, a, an eyes full, an eye full. In other words, so Yeesov will see the flock coming over the hill in the distance. And by the time it gets to him, then he will see the next flock coming over the hill. But his eye will have the whole, I'm not quite sure what Malay Ayin is, but it means there's a, um, uh, as far as he can see, distance between the first and the second. Why? In order to satisfy the eye of that wicked person, and also for him to be amazed, as in Tohu Vavahu, about the multitude of the present. The present, as in the gift. Um, the idea is, is quite simple, that if somebody gives you three gifts all at once, you think, oh, that's very nice. If somebody gives you a gift, and then they pause and they give you another gift, and then they pause and they give you another gift, you've ended up with the same number of gifts, but you're more impressed with the second scenario because you get gift after gift after gift. So um, that achieves two things. It satisfies the eye of that wicked person because the whole idea was to make him happy with these gifts and to make him amazed about how much he's being given. Um, and this will only work, um, both of these factors, to satisfy him, to give him the impression there's gift after gift after gift, and to make him amazed about how many gifts there are if there's a space between them. So this is a consequence of giving space. Um, the first thing that Rashi says uh, on that comment, each flock before its fellow, is perhaps to counteract an alternative understanding you might have. Um, because when it says put a space between them, which is what he's talking about, there are two ways in which you can put a space between them, in series or in parallel. In other words, they could all be walking together, but with gaps between them, widthways, or they're walking one behind the other. And Rashi makes clear, one flock in front of the next one. So they are, I would say, in series, not in parallel. And again, that makes sense given the purpose of the space between them. If they were all coming uh, at once, but in three separate groups, that wouldn't achieve the psychological effect on Aesop um, to make him amazed at how many presents he's getting. Now, it's worth pointing out that Rashi here, as often, is quoting the Midrash, but with a bit of a change. The Midrash in Bereshit Rabbah, sorry, I don't have the reference here, but it says on this Pasuk, that's what the Pasuk says, says the Midrash, Midrash Rabbah. Why didn't he bring them in in a big mixture? in order to make him amazed at the present. And why didn't he bring them all in in one go? In order to satisfy the eye of the wicked person. And what is, the reason I mention this is because there's a discussion, is Rashi going the same as the Midrash or not? First of all, it's clear that Rashi is changing the words in the Midrash. That's the support for the Nahamad Leibritz position we talked about earlier. The Rashi often does that um, because the Midrash doesn't necessarily answer the question. Rashi 
is there to answer the question. And that's why he amends sometimes the words of the Midrash so he can focus on that purpose. But here's the discussion. Are there two separate reasons answering two separate questions? Or is it just one? Rashi puts the two ideas. To order to satisfy the eye of that wicked person and to make him amazed about the size of the present. He, Rashi joins the two together. He says, it's this reason and that reason. End of story. And those are the two reasons for the space between the flocks. In the Midrash, there's two separate questions and two separate answers. The first question is, why didn't he mix them all up? And the answer is to make um, Aesop wonder or amazed at the present. And the second question is, why didn't he bring them all at one go in order to satisfy the eye of that Russia? It sounds like the Midrash suggests like different scenarios. He could have had the animals separately divided into their separate flocks, but arriving at the same time. So the first question is, why aren't they, why do you have them in separate flocks? And that's to show how much present there is. And the second question is, why don't they all come at the same time? That's to satisfy the eye of the Russia to make him realize, wow, there's a present, there's another present, there's another present. So it sounds like there's two separate questions and two separate answers, and Rashi merges the two. So basically, I, I haven't got much more to say, except um, the, uh, um, I didn't, see the, the sorry not sure who says this but some want to say that Rashi uh, is differing from the Midrash um, and joining two separate answers and making them into one uh, but the Berba Sadeh that's the one wants to say that no Rashi's really understood the, the real meaning of the Midrash but they are two aspects of the same question why are the animals not mixed up and why are they brought in separately really is one single question and Rashi only needs to ask one single question, what's the purpose of putting the space between them? And he gives two answers to the same question. Or you can say, as I said a moment ago, that Rashi is differing from the Midrash. The Midrash says there are two separate questions and two separate answers. And Rashi thinks it's just one joint pair of answers to one single question. Let's move on to Pasuk Yudhet. Um, I'm doing a lot of talking. Are there any questions or any questions from the online people? Please indicate. Uh, you might, if you're online, you might have to like shout and like attract my attention. So, he commanded the first group, saying, When Esav, my brother, will meet you, and he will ask you, saying, well, I'll leave Rashi to translate that, and where are you going? And we'll leave Rashi to translate that as well. But actually, I do want to say, I'll give my own interpretation, first of all, before we get into like the precise meaning. Yaakov says to his servants, when you meet Esau, he's going to ask you three questions. Whom do you belong to? Where are you going? And what do you have in front of you? What do you have to bring? Rosolovetschik says that when the Jew confronts non-Jewish society, he has to answer three questions. Because non-Jewish society always says, Whose side are you on? What's your purpose? And what can you contribute? And if we're asked those questions, we have to have good answers to them. Anyway, that's, that's a, a drush, if you like, on what we're saying here. So Rashi says on the first question, Lumi ata, shell me ata, of whom are you? Mi shalchacha, 
who sent you? The Targum and the Aramaic translation is de man at, of whom are you? Rashi is explaining the Lamad. Why does Rashi need to explain the Lamad? Because what does Lamad normally mean? But two or four, four? Yes, I suppose so. Um, and here Rashi says it means something else. What does it mean here? Of what? Shell me. And uh, Rashi straight away says, me shall chacha. Um, and I think that's Rashi saying, we're not talking about ownership. When it says, of whom are you? It doesn't mean who do you belong to? Like you're a slave, wholly owned by your master. That's not what we're talking about here. Maybe it's not what we're talking about ever. ever, ever. But here we're talking about me shall chacha. Who sent you? Of whom are you the emissaries? So without Rashi, you might have thought, le mi ata, to whom are you? Where are you going? But that can't mean that, apart from the clumsy nature of the word, it can't mean that because the next question is, where are you going? So the le in le mi ata is not a sense of motion, is not a sense of direction. What is it? Shell. The le means shell. And again, Rashi's done that trick, which I, I want to highlight when he does it. He's taken the words le mi ata, and directly replaced them, or I'm sorry, directly rewritten them, but replacing one part. Instead of le mi ata, it's shell mi ata. To tell you that the lamad means shell. And to emphasize it and to bring a support for this translation, he quotes the Targum. And the Targum says, de man at. And the Dalad is, of whom are you? So the Dalad is the equivalent to shell, which is the translation of le. That's what it means in this case. Then Rashi, interestingly, doesn't say anything about Ba'ana because he doesn't need to. Where are you going? It's quite clear, doesn't need any commentary. Now, there is a problem with this comment of Rashi. Um, I don't know if you've got the text. And those that are before you, of whom are they? Those five words, are probably not uh, authentic Rashi. They don't appear in the original manuscripts. Um, and I would prefer to take them out because the next words of Rashi, Lemi Hamincha Hazot Shlucha, to whom is this Mincha sent? So let's just put aside the first five words of Rashi, which I think are pseudo Rashi anyway. Put them aside for a minute. What's Rashi doing with Lemi Hamincha Hazot Shlucha? Here, the Lamut means to. To whom is this present sent? So Rashi is doing what he often does, which is distinguishing between two similar but different phrases or ideas, or in this case, single letters. The Lamut in Lemi Ata means shell. The Lamut in Lemi Elelefanecha means, as we know and love, to. So he replaces by to whom is this mincha sent? So the problem with the previous little keta, little uh, five words of Rashi is it would contradict the next words of Rashi. If we read he's saying the lamad means shell, like it did in but then he says the lamad means two. So it really cannot be explained why Rashi would say the same word, or in this case, the same letter, means two different things in the same word. It can easily mean two different things in two different words. 
But to say it means two different things in the same word, that doesn't make sense. So I really think we have to take out and we're left with to whom is this present sent? And Rashi, I think, perhaps needs to say here the la means to, precisely because in the previous comment, he said the la in the previous phrase means of. However, there is still a complication because of what Rashi says next. Yeah, looking at that. Yeah. <laughs> the Lamut serves at the head of the word in place of shell. Kamo. And then he brings uh, two examples. But before we look at the two examples, which are straightforward, let's just understand um, what he's doing. I think you're forced to say that Rashi says in the first example, le means shell. In the second example, le means two. And then Rashi comments on the first example. And it's already one comment. The Rashi is saying le sometimes means of, as it does in the first example. By the way, not always, because in the second example, it means two. But now I'll go back and tell you how I understand the first example. The first example is that Lamad serves to mean in, in place of shell. I realize that it is slightly um, problematic what I'm saying, because the, the second example, Lamiha Mincha Hazot is a different use of the Lamad, and the commentary about the Lamad really should have gone before that. So that's why I'm forced to say that Rashi is interested in the Lamad meaning shell. In a sort of in brackets, he says, in the words, uh, it does mean two, but now I'll tell you that sometimes it means shell. And I will bring two psukim as a proof. And the first one comes from the words of Lavan. When Lavan was saying goodbye to Yaakov, he was saying, don't go away and don't take all like, uh, your wives and children with you. Everything that you see belongs to me, is of mine. It cannot mean that Lavan is saying, everything you see, Li, is coming to me, because his whole point is, it's already mine. So the Li is nothing to do with moving towards me. It means belonging to me, of me. So that is an example where she brings that posture because there's no ambiguity. That lama there must mean of me, belongs to me. And the next example, sorry, he says shalihu. It means it's mine. The next example is a posture from Tehillim, which we know, we, well, we know the, the quote, la Hashem ha'aretz umla'o. And then Rashi says, shel Hashem. Now, what does it mean? To Hashem is the land and, uh, and its fullness does not mean that Hashem is the, the, the earth and its fullness is going to move towards Hashem, because that's nonsense, because Hashem is everywhere and Hashem owns everything. On the contrary, it means that Hashem, that the earth and its fullness belong to Hashem. They are of Hashem. By the way, we do use this formulation um, all the time in Hebrew. Yesh li rav. Hunger is not coming to me. Hunger is not moving towards me, but hunger, looking at the Israeli here, belongs to me. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the fancy translation of I'm hungry. Yeah, because Yeshli no, Rav is a noun. That was right, you said. Yes, okay. <laughs> okay, no, oh, all right. When I learned Hebrew. Did you say it in French? Okay, Revli. In French, it works better. Yes, but in Hebrew, you, okay, Revli. Koevli. 
Okay, I'll say Koev later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you nobody would say Yeshli Koev. Yeshli Koev. Yeshli Koev. Yeah, does, does anyone say that? I have a pain. Yeah, but it's like it's just kept going. Okay, anyway, so that Lee, yeah. that Lee means belongs to me. Yeah. We, we actually it's quite a natural way of saying it, yeah. but it, it doesn't mean le e like, to me. Okay, so Rashi again, the, the point about la shem ha'aretumulo is it's incontrovertible, there's no ambiguity. It means Hashem, the whole world belongs to Hashem. So we brought two examples to show that the Lamad means belongs to, like it was in the first example. Of Lemi Atta. Okay. And, and by the way, the reason Rashi has a bit to say, and perhaps I've made it worse because I've talked about it a lot, is because Lemi Atta, you might read, are saying, to where are you going or to whom are you going? Especially because the messengers are on their way, but Rashi proves it doesn't mean that. So when Yaakov, sorry, when Aesop asks you these questions, you tet continues Yaakov in his instructions to the messengers. The Amarta la Avdacha Yaakov, and you will say of your servant Yaakov, Mincha Hishlucha, this present is sent to you, La Adoni, to my master, La Esav, to Esav, Behinei Gamhu Acharenu, and behold, also he is behind us. So, what is Rashi saying? The Amarta la Avdacha Yaakov. Al Rishon Rishon Val Achron Achron. You answer the first first and you answer the last last. Why does Rashi say this? You might recognize that the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot in Perakhei says somebody who answers the first question first and the last question last is a right, uh, sorry, is a Chacham. That's one of the marks of uh, Chachma. Okay, who else that we've met in our Shirim? Rashi makes the point that they answer the first question first and the last question last. Ooh. Okay, I'll leave that for homework. I'll leave that for homework. Even Brian is frowning. But Rashi makes the point of somebody did exactly the same thing. Anyway, Aviara is wondering. You've got a wondering face. You're thinking. You're thinking. <laughs> okay. And anyone listening on the podcast can also think. And we'll give the answer next week. Um, but the other thing, Rashi, I don't think Rashi is just saying, Oh, do the clever thing. Answer the first question first and the last question last, because then particularly Avot will describe it as a chacham. He's saying that la avdecha liyakov is the answer to the first question. The first question was lemiata. Whom I, who, to whom are you? The answer is la avdecha liyakov. Because otherwise, it's not quite clear how to put the grammatical, how to parse the sentence. Is it la avdecha liyakov minchahi? The mincha belongs to Yaakov? No, it's not clear. So Rashi says, which he uses as his Dibaramatchil, is meaning the first of the first, the last of the last. Continues Rashi, I, sounds like the messengers are answering in the singular, I am belonging to, to your servant, to Yaakov. So adding the word Ani makes it clear that is the answer to the first question, the first question is to whom do you belong, i.e. who sent you, that's the word of Rashi and Yudchetz, I was sent by Yaakov. The Targumo, and Rashi backs it up, the Avdecha to Yaakov. Um, the Targum is of your servant of Yaakov. So again, um, we've understood that Lamad means of, 
And the Avdecha de Yaakov, of your servant of Yaakov, is the answer to the question of Lemi Ata. And then it says, says Rashi, Veshusha Alta, Lemi Eila Lefanecha, when you asked to, to whom are these before you, answer, Mincha Hi Shalucha, etc. It is a Mincha that has been sent. So Rashi is breaking up the answers to show that he is, the messengers are answering the two questions. Now, why two questions? Because I've just noticed that there's no reference to the answer to the middle question, which is, where are you going? Uh, Rashi didn't talk about it in his commentary in Yudchet. And I've just noticed, so I opened this for discussion, that it's not actually mentioned in Yudchet. They answer the first question, to whom do you belong? Answer, and they answer the last question. Yeah. Ah, so Tula uh, Esav is the answer, but then, he's up, but then they're in the wrong order. order, but that's because that's self, self-understandly. Uh, yeah. It's a self-explanatory. The answer, to, if we're looking at it, um, like we did before, the Miata and the Mi'ed, so it's just two questions. But in in Yudchet, there's another question in the middle. Yeah. There's the Miata, the Anatele. As two questions, and when you arrive to a start, you've got a problem. Ah, Ulumiata va'anotelech is one question. Yeah. It's hard to say it's one question when it's two different yeah, ideas. So we're going to you. Okay, all right. I'll, I'll say Tarachim, but that's a good start. Okay, then Rashi says, Vihine gam hu, the end of the message that the messengers are to give in your tet is behold also he is after us it says rashi rashi is telling us that the who refers to yaakov now why does rashi have to do that well because i think we have the classic pronoun problem what's the problem the pronoun Unidentified pronouns, we don't know to what it refers. What else could it refer to? Well, one thing it could refer to uh, the mincha, because that's actually the last noun mentioned. Mincha hi shlucha la dnila esav behine gam huacharenu. Yeah, okay, it doesn't quite work because it'll be gam hi because mincha is feminine. Um, but it could be, but the, the gift, the animals or the, uh, the animal gift, I'm trying to find something that would be male, um, that's coming after us. Or better, better spell. I mean, that that works because mincha is the last noun used, although it would be he. Um, so the elo is not exactly. Well, I was thinking that the the next bunch of messengers are behind us. So the first messengers give the first message. The gambu There's more behind us. So Rashi has to make clear, but it's actually Yaakov. Now, why does Rashi have to make that clear? Um, and the reason will become clearer in pasuk kaf aleph. Um, Yes, because in Pasuk Kav Aleph, uh, there seems to be a repeat of some of what's said in your text. I'll just refer you to the beginning of Kav Aleph. But you will say, behold, our servant, your servant Yaakov is behind us. Now, there is a discussion, um, not explicit in Rashi, maybe implicit in Rashi, why it sounds a little bit different. In your text, it's Gamhu Acharenu. In Kaf Aleph, it's Hinei Avdecha Yaakov Achareinu. And we can talk about why it's different when we get there next week. But in the meantime, um, if Yaakov mentions that it's going to be Yaakov behind us, in the words of the messengers, 
That's why Rashi is sure that when it says gam, uh, in your text, that's the same as in Kaf Aleph. And that's why Rashi spells out in his comment on your text that gamhu refers to Yaakov. Yes, Sarah. In considering your previous question of, of not necessarily addressing the um, the um perhaps that is part of the wisdom of Rishon, Rishon, and Acharon, Acharon, that there is, uh, this may be a bit obscure, but the goal is to eschew answering that question that maybe Yaakov wishes to conceal where he's going or it will like depend on how Ah, so he's not answering the question at all. Yeah, so the, you answer the Rishon Rishon and you answer the Akhra, 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 and you miss out the, the middle one. Oh, very nice. We'll, we'll see how the reunion goes and then we'll know, am I going to Israel? Am I going to follow away so anywhere? So like, and what you're saying, though, is Rishon Rishon Akhra, Akhra is very Meduya. Yes. It means he answers the first question first and the third question next, if you and like, and misses out the MCE. And that's why Rashi's it refers to Rishon and Achron alone. Well, that's, yeah, and, and just alluding to the Chacham um, description brought in Pirkei Avot, that it is, there is this sort of um, even cunning sort of wisdom to it, that, you know, you don't need to answer that middle question if you're addressing things in order, that's kind of a distractor there. Yep. Nothing to back it up. <laughs> okay. Idea. Well, definitely <laughs> worth, worth examining. Okay, I think we will draw to a close because um, the next Rashi, which is not till Kaf Aleph, um, is long, and we're not going to do it justice in four minutes. Not only is it long, but it's also very important. Every Rashi is important because the Rashi on Kaf Aleph is the meaning of the word Kapara, which we normally translate as atonement. And Rashi is going to tell us what atonement really is. So we will stop there. Um, rather than give you all that homework, I will tell you that the person who answered Rishon, Rishon, Akhran, Akhran is. Uh, oh, yeah, yes. Ruth has said, wasn't it Rivka answering Eliezer? And she is correct. 10 points to Ruth. It was Rivka when Eliezer asked her, have you got food for us? Have you got, have you got room for our camels, etc." And she answered, Rishon, Rishon, Akron, Akron. Okay, thank you very much. See you next week.